Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at verse 17 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 28. Uh, of course, we believe that uh, these words that we're reading today were written by the Apostle Paul, but that they were written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and uh, therefore come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together as I read aloud the word of Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under subjection or under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. We had a great spotted cow uh, the other night. My dad uh, came over from Huntsville. It was a we talked about fatherhood. It was a great time, and we had a wonderful conversation. A lot of men sitting around fire, eating meat, talking about manhood, and we talked about fatherhood specifically. My dad, though, at the event, talked a good bit about his dad, my granddad. And my granddad, my father's very warm, very, you know, Pedro says he's like a big teddy bear. You just, you see him, you just want to go give him a hug. Um, my grandfather wasn't like that. He was, he was a much... Uh, harder man. Um, kind of hard to know. I don't really have a lot of memories of him. Um, just, a, just a hard man. He died of cancer when I was pretty young. Um, but I tell you, one memory that really sticks out, I was at his house there in Mobile, and we were watching March Madness, and uh, this was like the early 90s. And I think this is the first time that I, that I saw this commercial. It was a commercial that would have a big effect on my life. Let me, let me show it to you. America is still the land of rugged individualists. I go around. I was strong as I could be. I go around. Nothing ever got to me. And every one of them demands something different from their Chevy truck. But they all want the same thing. The most dependable, longest lasting trucks on the road. Dependable, longest-lasting truck on the road. 
And uh, anyway, it, it, it obviously, I love that series of commercials. I wasn't going to show it. I was just going to reference it. But then Chaps had never seen a Like a Rock the commercial. And I was like, maybe a lot of you haven't. So I'm sorry you missed that amazing stage in advertising. Um, but anyway, I, I remember uh, I was there. We watched March Madness. That commercial comes on. Again, don't have a lot of memories of, of my granddad, but he sees that commercial and he starts crying. I'd never seen him cry. And, uh, you know, he said, I used to be like a rock. I used to be strong and tough. And he was sitting there dying of cancer. And, you know, his days were limited. And he said, now look at me. You know, now look at who I am. Now look at what's become of me. I was like a rock, but now I'm old. I'm weak. You know, in a church like ours, we're a young church, which is great. You know, we, we have, we're the kind of church where people are getting married, where people are having babies. In fact, big announcement, Matt Nolan just yesterday had uh, another baby girl, uh, incredibly exciting. So congratulations to them. The Holmans also had a baby this week. That's what's going on here, right? We're, we're the kind of church, there's a lot of life. There's a lot of young life here. Um, and I hope that's always true of Christ's covenant. But in a church like this, we, we probably don't think about death enough. It's not a church where uh, members in our congregation are regularly dying. It, death is one of those things that it, it's, it's hard to think about when you're young and you have energy and you're vivacious. You think about it more when you get older. I was having uh, lunch with a friend of mine who's in his mid, maybe late-ish 60s. And um, it was, we, I think we were actually met for lunch on September 11th. And he said, man, I can't believe that's been 18 years ago. That happened like that. He said, in another 18 years, I'll probably be dead. And, you know, maybe he will. You know, be in his mid-80s by that point. Uh, and it's an amazing thing to think about how quick 18 years can go. When you get a little closer to the finish line, you, you think about it more. You know, death is one of those things that we can put off thinking about it, but we can't put it off, right? It doesn't matter how powerful you get in this life how much money you earn, what kind of position you hold. It's something that comes to us all. I, uh, there's this quote uh, by Jonathan Edwards that uh, I've always just loved. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. It says, death serves us all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. Death is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace, numerous attendants, or majestic countenance. I love this. Death pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with as few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. There is a constancy and a certainty about death that it's unavoidable, which is what makes this passage, if you ever really read 1 Corinthians 15, it's what makes this passage so intriguing because death is something that we all have to respect, that we all have to fear, but there's no fear of death in this passage. There's, it's not stepping back from death. In fact, at one point later on in the passage, the, pa the part that Blake read earlier, it's as if Paul's almost taunting death. Death, where is your victory? You know, it's like, where is your victory now, death? Where is your sting now, death? It's not treating death as an enemy that will defeat us. Rather, this passage treats death 
as an enemy that has been defeated. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, we have been in this series called Ordo Salutis. We've been talking about the order of salvation. How is one restored in their relationship with God? How is one saved? How does one come to know the living and the true almighty God? And we've been talking about all of these kind of big Christian ideas, regeneration, justification, sanctification. We've been saying that through the work of Christ, through the righteousness of Christ, through the atoning death of Christ, we in Christ, through faith in Christ, can be restored to God. We can be reconciled to God. We can know God. We can experience salvation. But the final end of that, what it, what it ultimately means to be saved, the end of, this, of God's work of salvation is this state that we know in Scripture that we've talked about in church history called glorification where the work of salvation is complete. This is the end of salvation. This is the the last stop in the Ordo Salutis. So what is glorification? Well, here's a pretty clear but pretty robust definition. It says this, the last stage, glorification is the last stage in which the process of salvation, namely the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Jesus, we just read about that, and the entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. In glorification, believers attain complete conformity to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ. Okay, that's interesting. And are freed from both physical and spiritual defect. Glorification ensures that believers will never again experience bodily decay, death, or illness, and will never again struggle with sin. So we're not going to fully unpack that today, but with that in mind, uh, and with 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 3, we're going to be jumping kind of around in some scriptures. I want to I try to answer three things or look at three things with you. The first is evidence that you will be glorified. How do you know that you will be glorified, as Christ is glorified, that definition just said. How do you know that you will be glorified? Second, what happens when you are glorified? What is this glorification like? And then thirdly, how does it happen? What happens? How does it happen? So the first thing, I'm kind of going to preach this sermon a little backwards. This is probably where most preachers would end the sermon. Um, But I just think it's so important, I want to get to it before I run out of time. Evidence that you will be glorified. This is really kind of the key question, right? Evidence that this salvation has even taken root in your life. Evidence that you have this hope. I don't want to talk about this hope if if you don't know that you have it. If, If you can't be assured that this glorification, this salvation will come to you. When you meet God, will you see him as a friend or as an enemy? Yeah, as I've been saying through this whole series, you know, none of us are good before God. Our holiness, our righteousness, it always comes up short. Uh, you know, the very first week we, we, we talked about you know, this notion that most people think, oh, he's a good guy, he's a good guy, everybody's good. But I said, but who among us, who here is willing to right now have on this screen all of your deeds? The Bible says the, the Bible, the, the the word of God, that God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. All of your deeds, all of your thoughts, 
all of your intentions. Who here is willing to have all of your thoughts and intentions displayed for everyone to see on this screen behind me here? Who, who would want that to happen so that you can prove to everybody that you're good? So you can show everybody, look how good I am. I'm going to show you everything I've done and thought about this week, everything that I've intended to do this week. Who would want to display their goodness on the screen? Of course, you would say, no, I don't want people to know that. Because there would be so much that was shown and displayed that happens inside of us internally from our heart that is unrighteous and is unholy and that is corrupt and strange and weird that you would run out of here terrified, mortified, and embarrassed. And that is showing all of that before a bunch of other people who wouldn't want their video to be shown either. Imagine if that same knowledge was held by a holy and almighty God. And here's the deal, it is. Who stands before God with a record of righteousness? Who stands before God with any sort of claim on righteousness or holiness? But the amazing offer that we've been talking about, the amazing offer of the gospel is that there is a righteousness available to us. The very righteousness of Christ, the very righteousness of the Son of God who perfectly lived, who, who only had good intentions, who only had good thoughts. The amazing thing about Jesus is for all the good that we know he did do, we don't even know. We don't even have a glimpse of how good he was and how holy he was. If his video would be shown, you know, John said there was not enough room in the world to hold the books of how glorious Jesus is. We wouldn't have enough time to see the video. There'd be no capacity for us to, in, to intake all the good that he did. And, and, and the glorious offer of the gospel is that his perfect righteousness, a righteousness that always overflows holiness, has been applied to you through faith. And your record of sin, all of your misdeeds have been applied to him. Uh, he, he, he willingly took on our record and died in our place. So that now, rather than standing before God, receiving the just condemnation that we all deserve, we can actually receive from God reward. Rather than standing before God and experiencing what the Bible talks about as the second death, that it describes as a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, we can experience this thing that I'm talking about here, glorification. Now, when you really hear that, and I hope you've been here through this whole series, when you really hear that, you will either say, it's too good to be true. There's no way that God would love me so much to give his only son, that all I have to do is believe in him and have life and glory in him. There's no way God would love me. Or, you, or I hope and I pray you would receive it and say, wow, I can't, I can't believe God loves me this much. I can't believe God's given so much to me. I can't believe God would do this for me, for a sinner like me. It's amazing, his love. And if that's really happened in your life, if you've really received this, if you really believe that this kind of love, this justification, this righteousness has been applied to you, if you really believe that your sins have been forgiven in Christ, then something happens. Jump over with me to Revelation chapter 3. I want to look, this is a famous kind of passage of scripture. So at the beginning of Revelation, Paul writes these letters. I'm sorry, Paul. John writes these letters. It's really Jesus addressing through John all of these churches. And uh, probably the one that's the most famous is the church of Laodicea. And I want to look at that with you. Uh, it's in verse 15 all, uh, of chapter 3. All the churches, there's different things that Jesus says to them. Some good, some bad. Laodicea, he has nothing nice to say. But it was an interesting city. 
It was a very wealthy city. It was a a strong city. There had actually been an earthquake right before this that had devastated the entire region of Laodicea. And everyone in the region, every other city in the region had received assistance from the government. Rome had sent assistance to every other town to help them with the government, to help them with the earthquake, to help them with repairing themselves. The same thing happens today, right? If, if, a, if an earthquake comes or a hurricane comes, the government, the federal government comes in, FEMA comes in, right, and, and helps um, repair the area. Well, when that happened, you know what happened with Laodicea? They were so strong, they were so powerful, they, they refused government assistance. This is how strong, they were so wealthy. They said, we don't need it, Rome. You keep your money. Uh, They were a banking center. They were located at the crossroads of two very important trade routes. It was a fashion center. It was actually a renowned place. People would go shopping there. They had this black wool clothing that people knew about. It was a medical center. Uh, They had this ophthalmology. I don't exactly know what it was. There was something they would put on their eyes that would help people to see. People would go there for treatments. It's a very respected city. People liked this city. People liked going to this city. This city was used to receiving accolades. Now, you can imagine, uh, they're, they're the kind of city that everybody's saying, wow, this is one of the best places to live. It's one of the best places to work. They, they didn't receive government funding. What a city, Laodicea. You can imagine these people, they're stepping up. They're going to receive their word from Jesus. And of course, this is what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either be hot or cold because you're lukewarm. And neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And then listen, look at what he does here, verse 17. He, 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 he goes to the things that they're identifying with. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to really anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see what Jesus is saying here to the church is you aren't trusting me. Your faith is in your banks. Your faith is in your clothing. Your faith is in your eye medicine. But you're really naked you're really blind, you're really pitiable, you're really poor, you're really wretched. Your heart, your interests are in something else. You aren't trusting me. And for a long time, I read this passage, you know, when I was a kid in church. And uh, we had this category of lukewarm Christians. If you all grew up in church, you'd hear people say that. Oh, well, they're a Christian but they're just a lukewarm Christian, right? You heard that. They're, it's this kind of, they're not really doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're a lukewarm Christian. They may not be having as many quiet times or giving as much as they should be, but they're lukewarm. I kind of had that category in my mind. They, they, they knew Jesus, but they were just lukewarm. But I just want to say this, if you kind of, even today, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm kind of a lukewarm Christian. I know Jesus. He is my hope, but I don't know if I'm like as intense as I need to be. This is not, there is no category of lukewarm Christian. We, we got this language from here, but that's not, what, that's not what Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea. He is saying, you're not a Christian. He's saying, you're lost. I mean, look at the words, wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, naked. These aren't words that Jesus uses to describe his bride. These aren't words that the Father uses to describe his children. Yeah, I heard a preacher say one time, the song doesn't say, I was blind, but now I'm still blind. <laughs> no, this, there is no category of lukewarm Christian. If God has really done what we've been saying for three weeks, what God, if God has really done that for you in Christ, then that moves you, it changes you, it, 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 it forever affects you. So how do you know? What is the evidence? And, and he goes on in verse 19, he says, look, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And I think these are two important words, so be zealous and repent. If you're really in Christ, the first kind of word I want to look at with you is, is zealous. You're zealous. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You love the things of the Lord. You are for the things of God. If God, if the God who created all things, who has authority over all things, if that God really loves you and loves you enough to send his son for your salvation, that does something to you. It, it, it changes you. A mark, of our, a mark of Christians is that we're zealous. Our faith can survive trial because we're zealous. We're for the Lord. We love the things of God. You know, you know, early Christianity should have never made it. It was born into a world that totally hated it. First the Jews hated it, then the Romans really hated it. You know, I was reading a couple weeks ago about a Roman general, Varus, who one time went into a city saying, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And he met some resistance in that town to Caesar. And you know what he did? In one day, he crucified 2,000 people. Okay? This is, this is Rome. There's another story that I heard uh, of a General Cassius. He met some resistance to Caesar, to the reign and authority of Caesar. And in one swift act, he took away the freedom of 30,000 people living in that place, made them slaves. This is Rome. Caesar is everything. Don't question it. Don't challenge it yet. And yet in the middle of this environment, you have these Christians going around at great cost to themselves saying, no, Jesus is Lord. He is the way. He is everything. He is the truth. And yet somehow Christianity makes it. And it came at great cost. I mean, Tertullian famously said it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. People saw these people believe that this Jesus must be real. Something happened to them. Something must have happened to them because they, they believe. They're so zealous. Bishop J.C. Ryle once said this, a Christian does not care whether he lives or dies, whether he's healthy or sick, whether he's rich or poor, whether he is popular or offensive, whether he gets blame or praise, whether he gets honor or shame. None of these things really matter. He only cares about one thing, to bring joy to the heart of the Savior, to honor his Savior, to please his Savior, to bring joy to the heart of the one who gave himself. Christians are zealous. Second mark, be zealous and repent. For those who I love, I approve of discipline, so be zealous and repent. The second mark is repentance. Repentance is always a mark 
of the Christian life. You all heard me quote Luther, the very first of the 95 theses, the first one of the 95 statements that started the Reformation. Here it is. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he will the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Now, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that our entire life is one of repentance? It means we're always walking around in sackcloth and ashes. No, repentance is this, that we're turning away from sin and we're turning toward Christ. We're turning away from ourselves and the things that separate us from God and we're turning to God. That is the life of repentance. And that is what should be marking your life and should be marking my life. Are you turning away from things that divide you from God and turning to Christ and turning to his kingdom and turning to his truth? Or is your life marked by repentance? And this is God's grace. Sin only destroys you. It only separates you from one another. It separates you from God. Repentance is turning away from that and turning to the Lord. Christians aren't just people who have turned. Repentance is not something we do. Repentance is something that we have done, are doing, and will continue to do until we see Jesus. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Is your, lar- is your life marked by these things? Zeal and repentance. So what is the evidence that you will be glorified? Those two things. I I hope that you're hearing me. (laughs) This is the most important question you could ask. Is my life marked by these things? Will I really be glorified? But the second thing I want to look at with you today, and hopefully we'll spend a good bit of time here, is what will it be like when we are glorified? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15 with you. You can be turning back over to 1 Corinthians 15, but on your way there, I want to look at an idea. So Revelation 21, we're actually going to look at this passage a little later, the passage a little later but it's a, it's a description of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens, new earth, of this time when the glory of God, the glory of Christ is fully known. And from the throne, in the new city, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Now, There were two words in the Greek for new. One was chronos, which is where we get the idea of chronology, right? Something new in terms of time. It just happened. It's new. The other is kainos. And kainos is the word that's being used here. And kainos was new in terms of quality. It, It was better. It was more complete. It was new. It was more whole. It was was renewed, maybe, an idea of that. It's whole. It's right. And this is what Jesus is is doing here. He's taking things that do exist, things like us, things like the universe, and he's kinosing it. He's making it new. He's making it whole. He's making it complete. He's making it as it is supposed to be. And now we can go back to 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul is describing. He's talking about the seed that is sown that comes out new, that that comes out more complete, that comes out more whole. So let's look at this description of what is glorification like. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You know, my grandfather cried when he saw the Chevy commercial because he had a keen awareness that he was perishing. He was fading away. His body was giving itself over to death. But Jesus makes all things new. To, to, to be made new, to be glorified, is to be imperishable, to never fade. 
to always, to not be fading, but rather to be growing in strength and in love and in beauty and in knowledge. I love, this is a quote from Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. He says, for the Christian, death is not the end of adventure, but a doorway from a world where dreams and adventures shrink to a world where dreams and adventures forever expand. You know, this world, all your dreams and all your adventures, the older you get, shrink, right? You start off and you want to be an astronaut. You start off and you want to play in the NFL. And then you get a little older and you're like, maybe I just want to have a nice high school career. You, know? you, know, you, you start off and you want to be a millionaire and you want to do all this and you want to start a business. You want to be, you know, and then it's, you know, maybe I just want to, you want to be president of the United States. You're like, well, maybe I just want to be vice president of a small company. Typically, our dreams shrink, but I love this. What this is saying is, no, <laughs> heaven, death is this gateway to this world where our dreams and our visions and our adventures only grow forever and forever and forever. This is glorification. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. Here's one of the, my favorite things to think about when thinking about glorification in the new heavens, new earth. You know, Augustine kind of famously has his four states of man. I've never heard this. I'm going to run through this real quick. But you know, the first state of man, Adam in the garden. He, you know, Augustine, of course, uses the Latin. This is kind of a famous Christian thing. This is, you can, you can uh, show how, you can show off your self-righteousness with this. But anyway, uh, just kidding, that was a joke. But anyway, but, but Augustine, you know, the first Adam in the garden before sin, he was, he was posse picari, posse non picari, which meant he could have sinned, he could have not sinned, right? He was free. He could have sinned, which he did, but he could have been righteous, right? He, he, he was in a place where he could have seen, he could have obeyed. Of course, he didn't obey. And then we, we moved into the second state, which is, this is where we are without Christ. It's non posse, non picari, which means we... we we sin all the time. It, it means you're not able not to sin, right? You're not able not to sin. You, you can't do what's right. Without Christ's redeeming work in our life, without the work of regeneration in our life, we're, we're drawn into sin. We're drawn into self. We're drawn away from the things of God. But of course, what we believe as Christians is that we've been redeemed. We've been renewed. That God is doing a work in our lives. That our eyes have been opened. Regeneration has happened in our lives. And so then the third state is that we are like Adam again. We're passe picare, passe non picare. We can sin, but we cannot sin too. We, we can obey. We can follow the Lord. But the last state, this is the state of glory. This is the promise of glory. And I love this, is that we're non passe picare, which means you, we're not able to sin. We can't sin. We can only do the right thing all the time. Your capacity in glory is only to obey. It's what we talked about last week. You're actually there totally free where you always do what you want to do because what you want to do is always what you ought to do. And man, for those of you like me that are fighting sin, that are struggling with sin, don't you desire this? Don't you desire glory when the dishonorable seed that's sown is raised in an obedient, glorious, alive 
result. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. You know, the amazing thing to think about in glorification is that it's not just you being glorified. You're being glorified into a new heavens, new earth where everyone else is glorified. That's an amazing thing to think about too. You know, um, Matt and I were talking this week about there's this famous Jonathan Edwards sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. Basically, Edwards described the effects of God, which is an ever-flowing fountain of love that he will have on us in glory. And, and can you imagine if, if you were in an environment where everyone was loving perfectly, where no one was selfish, where, where no one was rude, where no one was unkind, where no one was self-centered, where, where everyone had concern for the other, where no one was a thief, where no one was ever dishonest, where no one ever had any inclination towards sin. It's, it's hard to even imagine how much that would totally affect our lives. But that is what God is going to do, what he is doing in salvation, what he's going to do in glory. We grow from weakness to power. We go from this weak, incapable, sinful person to glorious and right and full C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce, and he, it's this interesting little story about people going on a bus from hell to heaven. And they're kind of seeing all these things going on in heaven, um, and they're taken by it. And there's this one description where they see this woman, and she's glorious and radiant and beautiful. And, and it's this long description of her, and they're in awe of her. And they say, who was she? You know, who was this woman? And and basically, the, the, the guide on the bus says, well, she was just Sarah Smith. She lived on Golders Green. <laughs> In other words, here on earth, she was just this woman. She just was a normal woman over there on Golders Green. Sarah Smith. But now the work of glory has happened to her. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. The guide explains, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool. And the concentric waves spread out further and further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is enough, there is joy enough in the finger of such a saint as yonder lady to awaken all dead things of the universe into life. And that's Lewis. But if really, if 1 Corinthians is true, and we are being glorified like Jesus the firstfruits into his image, then how much glory, how much authority, how much beauty will there be in you? The guide goes on to say, he'll make the feeblest and the filthy of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. We are sown weak, <laughs> common, perishing people, but raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Now, what does all this mean? There's so much here, and I'm short on time. 
This is fun to talk about, isn't it? Um, here's, here's a great thing that you have to look through when thinking about glory is that Christ is the first fruits. When I was uh, a pastor, my first pastorate was in Indiana, little town, farming community, 300 people in the whole town, little church called New Washington Christian Church. They were all farmers. Um, and uh, harvest, this is, this is harvest time, guys. You don't even know. We live in Atlanta. But we're, we're coming up on harvest. In Indiana, in New Washington, harvest is a big deal. We would, pr- we, we would pray for the harvest. We, we had, I mean, harvest was like a big thing in our church. It was kind of like Christmas, you know. It, you know what harvest was? Everybody was really busy. Everybody was like really on edge. It was like tax season here. Like we have a lot of accountants. They had a lot of farmers, right? And so, but harvest was big. And they were always excited to see the first fruits, right? How do you know if you're going to have a good crop? Your first fruits tell you a lot. First fruits kind of tell you everything you need to know about the crop that's going to follow. And that's the language that is being used here in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the first fruits. This has already happened. We know a good harvest is coming because Jesus has already shown us the kind of fruit, the kind of glory, the kind of resurrection that we will have. He is the first fruits. Jesus has been glorified, and just as Jesus has been glorified, we'll be glorified in him. You say, what is is the glorification like? Think about this. After the resurrection, I think this is interesting. Everybody kind of has trouble recognizing Jesus. Have you noticed this? Like Mary thought he was the gardener. And then when the fishermen were out at sea and Jesus was standing on the shore, they couldn't quite make him out. And then the road to Emmaus, remember they're walking along with Jesus and then, they, then their eyes are open. They, they eventually all recognize him, but everybody's a little confused at first. And I, I think that's a hint at glorification. I think that's something that's saying, you know, when you're glorified, the resurrected you, it's, it's, going, it's going to be like you but it's just going to be so much more full. It's going to, it, it, you're going to be so much more complete, so much more whole that it's just going to be hard to see. And I think about the, the moment in the New Jerusalem where we're all kind of finding one another again. Say, oh, yes, <laughs> of course I know you. Of course I've seen you. It's, it's you, it's just a better you. It's a kainos you, a complete you, a whole new. And Jesus is the first fruits. He is the evidence that the harvest is coming. He is a sign of your glory that points to your life, that points to your resurrection. You were planted natural, but you're going to be raised spiritual. So we've looked at evidence that you will be glorified. We've looked at what glorification is. But last, how does this happen? How how are we glorified? And and really... the answer is it's not too different than what we looked at last week. As we behold God, as we see God, as we see God more and more fully and more and more completely, we are conformed into his image. This is how the work of glory is done. It's just, it's just when at the return of Christ, it's just when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be able to see him fully. It's interesting. Go back to Revelation 3 with me. You remember the passage, those who I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And this is kind of a famous verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. But then verse 21, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who keeps pursuing me and keeps trying to see me and is changed by me, 
is zealous for me, repents and turns toward me, the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know if you heard that, but this is the promise of Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who conquer, who are faithful to him, will one day with him sit on the throne of Christ. Like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? That that you and I would sit down on the throne with Jesus, on his throne with Jesus, and receive with him in our glorified state, in our resurrected state, receive with him the, the glory that he is due. And you say, well, what does that mean? It's, it's interesting. This is, again, you got to keep in mind that, that before chapter and verses, chapters and verses aren't really true to the scripture, the very next thing that you read, if you just go into chapter four, is a depiction of the throne. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes and all around within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. (laughs) The one who is faithful will sit with me on the throne with the elders and the thunder and the fire and the sea of crystal and everyone around screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The one who conquers, the one who stays faithful will sit with me on that throne. And when we see his glory and when we behold God and John in his, (laughs) the best way he possibly can giving us this description this is a man who's overwhelmed by the vision that he's just seen. Just as I believe when we see it in full, we will be overwhelmed. We will be changed. You see, you can't experience God. You can't really experience God. You can't hear this, that Jesus is inviting sinners like us to be with him around us. We can't experience this. We can't hear this and be lukewarm. No, you're either... You're either with Jesus, you've either been changed by him or you're lost, (laughs) or you're not. You're either looking to this day with hope or you're not. 
as Matt said earlier, heaven for you is either this desire to be with God on his throne with him forever, or it's not. And if we believe, if we really believe this, if we believe that God himself is inviting us to himself, you know, our response would just be, I'll do anything. I'll do whatever I have to. I'll go anywhere. It's all worthless. I just got to get there. I just got to be with Jesus. You know, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And then he went and with joy sold everything he had to go and get the field. And I just want to say this, evidence that the eyes of your heart are being opened and that you're seeing the glory of God right now, evidence of that is that you're being convicted right now. As you're desiring this throne right now, evidence that God really is at work in your life is that right now, there's light bulbs going off in your heart. You are repenting. You are turning. So keep turning. Keep pursuing. Keep seeking Jesus. And as we close, there's two thoughts, two very practical things that I want to encourage you with. Number one is think about glorification. You know, Jonathan Edwards said, every Christian should think about glory 15 minutes a day. He gave it time. And that's probably true. You know, how much time do you spend thinking about, you know, we spend so much time thinking about, you know, I'm almost 40, 37. So I I spend a lot of time thinking about the next 50 years I got, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the next 50 million years that I've got. How much time do you spend really thinking about your glorified self? Think about it. Yeah, I know of a pastor who actually, there's a cemetery near his house and he goes there every morning. Yeah, they used to have cemeteries near churches. You know, now, of course, they don't have cemeteries near middle schools, but they used to have cemeteries near churches and that's, they don't do that anymore, but I wish they did. It's a, it's a good discipline to have when you go worship the living God. And one day I'm going to see that God. Think about glory. And the other practical thing, and we're going to do it together, is take the Lord's Supper. Now the, Lord, the Lord's Supper is, is not just a look back. It's, it is a look back. It's an intentional look back to the cross. We're looking back to the cross. We're remembering that the body of Christ was broken on our behalf. We're remembering that the blood of Christ was spilled out on our behalf. But the Lord's Supper is also a a look forward. You know, Jesus said, when you take this, when you do this, you're proclaiming my death until I come. So there's there's a look back to his death, but there's a look forward to when he comes. When we literally will be with Jesus eating with him, drinking with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating him. And so, as Matt leads us, if you are here and you know the Lord, you're you're ready to identify with Jesus, zeal for the Lord, repentance from sin. These are things that are true of your life. You're trusting in Christ for salvation. These things are true of you, then here in a few moments, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Um, we have an option if you're uh, gluten-free or just by conviction you prefer grape juice. 
We have an option here kind of in this middle section. The rest of the stations um, are full with this bread and, and, and wine, and, and they're to represent some things. As you walk up to the bread, you'll, you'll take it and you'll break it to remind you that the salvation we have in Christ was costly. Jesus was broken on our behalf. When you take the wine, it, it's, it's a bitter taste to remind us that this sacrifice was, was deep. It was, it was bitter. It was hard. But Christ, but God in Christ loves us this much. So I invite you, if you're, if you're in Christ, if you're identifying publicly with Jesus, then I invite you to come, take these elements, hold on to them, and then we'll take these elements together corporately here in just a few moments. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this meal. I thank you for the reminder that it is. I pray, Father, that it would encourage our hearts now as we continue in worship. That we would look forward as we meditate on these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.